The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to another live edition of What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley. With me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He is a traditional Catholic priest. He's a member of the Society of St. Pius V, and he's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you tonight? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. How are you? Just the same, Father. Great Good. to be here. Good yeah. to see you. Yes. You too, Father. Did you want to uh, begin by asking for any prayers tonight? Well, I always ask for prayers for uh, dear ones, Supporters of the program, certainly, but uh, uh, also far beyond that, uh, asking for prayers for those who are ill, those who are suffering, ask for prayer for those who are still suffering the uh, consequences of the hurricane Ian. And there are many um, who are still suffering from that. In fact, I, I was just talking to a lady on, on Sunday at Our Lady of Peace Chapel in Florida, had taken in her mother-in-law because her mother-in-law had lost everything, literally everything, um, every item of clothing and uh, every piece of furniture um, was simply gone, so swept away because I think she lived near Fort Myers Beach down there, so that gun was the hardest hit. Yeah. So there are many uh, who are still suffering from this, and I think uh, rather traumatized by it, maybe even in a state of shock. But this is just one uh, episode uh, that is close to us, you know, personally, and uh, in our own country. There are many, many others who are suffering, too, around the world, so we should keep them in our prayers, back to charity, especially for those who are suffering under communist tyranny or threatened by it. Um, the errors of Russia that is spread throughout the world, we need to pray for those who are victims of that. So, uh, but above all, our prayer should be in reparation to our Lord for the sins committed against His Sacred Heart and against the Immaculate Heart of Mary. That's what Our Lady asked at Fatima. So I, I continually ask your prayers for that intention. Okay. Thank you, Father. We had uh, several things that we wanted to discuss tonight. Um, among among uh, the topics were uh, we wanted to uh, commemorate the uh, 60th anniversary today of, uh, of the... Um, uh, inauguration of Vatican II, Second Vatican Council, um, on this feast day of the maternity of the Blessed Mother. We wanted to um, just briefly mention a few words about her, and then we had a few emails that we wanted to get through as well concerning um, a couple different topics. One about Dante's Divine Comedy, uh, the fewness of the saved, uh, the true Catholic Church, and also the uh, fate of babies who die in miscarriage without uh, receiving baptism. So I thought we could begin with uh, some of the emails, Father, and particular, the one about Dante's Divine Comedy. We've had it for some time now. Um, and I know this is of interest to some of our viewers. So, uh, Father, this viewer says um, that uh, while studying in my local library, I came across Dante's Divine Comedy. This book has always intrigued me due to the fact that I love to read in my spare time, and it is supposedly, quote, the greatest work of Catholic art of all time, end quote. <laughs> Despite drawing inspiration from the theology and philosophy of Roman Catholic religion, specifically from the Summa Theologica of Thomas Aquinas, 
This book has also been subject to a lot of controversy, as it mostly focuses on the politics of late 13th century Florence. So, Father, could you explain what was happening with the Catholic Church during that time, as well as provide your view on Dante's Divine Comedy? Well, certainly, whatever little I know about it, uh, 13th century, the 1200s, it was the century of St. Thomas Aquinas. Uh, true, uh, St. Thomas lived from 1225 to uh, 1274. In fact, he was on his way to the Second Council of Lyon when he became ill and died in a Cistercian monastery. Uh, um, the Church tells us uh, the history, and the historians tell us, that he died commenting on the canticle of canticles about the love of God love of God for us and our love for him. Um, so there's no doubt that St. Saint Thomas's great soul was carried off by a desire to be with our Lord, right? to be united with our Lord. So certainly uh, Dante lived sharing in that uh, same epic with St. Thomas Aquinas would have benefited. Um, I don't know, you know how much direct influence St. Thomas's uh, works had on Dante. There were no printing presses in those days. And um, so outside the University of Paris, um, in the circles where St. Thomas taught, um, I'm sure Dante would have known of St. Thomas, would have been very well known, but I don't know how much he would have studied if St. Thomas is teaching. I don't know that. But uh, certainly, um, you know, Dante shows a familiarity with scholastic philosophy and theology. And um, he represents that well in the, uh, in the uh, Divine Comedy. Um, I'm sure our readers are very familiar with the Divine Comedy. You know, I mean, we all studied that when we were in high school, in Catholic schools. Uh, I assume many of our readers, well, of course, I can't assume that these days, can I? I can't assume that. Maybe they're reading, um, um, I don't know what they're reading in modern so-called Catholic schools right now. I shudder to think, actually. So I don't know if they would have read any of the Divine Comedy, but whatever we would have read would have been in translation. We always have to realize that. I'm sure the copy that uh, this uh, writer speaks of, it was in English. It was an English translation, and translations like analogies always limp. <laughs> you can never quite get the full impact. <clears throat> um, and I, I've seen uh, various cantos of uh, Dante's Divine Comedy in the original Italian, and they have an economy of expression. Um, and in the original Italian of that era, uh, they have a certain force and, um, that the English doesn't necessarily convey very well. Um, so uh, the original uh, language of Dante actually carries with it an entire atmosphere of late um, uh, 13th century, um, as it was going into the 14th century, um, uh, Italy, and Florence in particular. And politics was very, very much a part of church life then. Uh, unfortunately, it, it always plays a role and the church is constantly fighting against that, as she did uh, just a few centuries early, during, earlier during the lay investiture struggle. When again, the powers of the world what, tried to dominate the church and insert their, uh, their lackeys into roles of power, <clears throat> influence, and wealth in the church. And 
Uh, popes paid with their lives for that, notably uh, Hildebrand, Pope Gregory VII. In Florence, that certainly was true in, in, to the nth degree. Right? Uh, a very lucrative uh, uh, post to hold in the church, Florence, very wealthy, uh, very wealthy uh, diocese. And, um, and Dante reflected that in the Inferno, certainly he, he talked about the ecclesiastical um, authorities, even of his time, in very critical terms. He even had um, popes in hell. I think the expression um, that the, the, what is it, the, the, the pavement of hell is, is uh, paved with the skulls of bishops. I think he, that's attributed to him. I don't have actually said it. Uh, but there were actually living people at his time, ecclesiastics, whom he had he portrayed as being in hell at that time. Um, and um, he even said that uh, there were those who were so wicked that their bodies were taken over by uh, by you know condemned souls who actually seized them and were operating them here on earth while while their souls were actually already condemned in hell. A very novel and rather startling idea, you know. But Dante did not mince his words when he was talking about the worldliness of ecclesiastics in his day. So we can see that he had a certain courage. It took a lot of nerve to, to do that, I think, uh, realize that he was, well, quote-unquote, speaking truth to power and about power. But also, uh, it's interesting that he was allowed to do that, you know, that, he, that he, in a sense, got away with that. Because there's no talk about Dante being having been molested by the powers that be, even as he was writing about them critically. But it also kind of gives us an idea of the fact that um, churchmen were not above reproach uh, and not above being reproached, as it were, for their bad behavior. Um, you know, we're, think about later in Florence, Savonarola. The Dominican friar who denounced the wickedness and worldliness of the prelates at the time, he paid for his life with that. Um, uh, Dante did not. That would have been a, few cent a couple of centuries earlier, anyway. A few centuries earlier. Um, so again, I think it shows the, the mentality of the Catholics. They did not worship the popes. They demanded that uh, they teach the faith uh, without fail, and also uh, they rebuked them when they did not live the faith. They required them to preach the true morality of the church, and they rebuked them when their own morality failed. It is uh, interesting to note, though, and I think a very great confirmation of our Lord's words uh, of his providential care of the church, though, that even when you had very worldly popes intruded into the papacy, and their, the, even though their own personal lives were, might have been scandalous. I mean, we, we read in Protestant authors about Alexander VI, we read about the Borgia line and how worldly they were. But, and I know that there are those who attack the church by bringing up the worldliness of, of popes at that era, but they cannot find a single trace of a pope justifying his own behavior when it was immoral. I mean, all the popes condemned uh, immorality 
even when they themselves were guilty of immorality, they still condemned it. And I think that is a, you know, a testimony of the providence of God, that the teaching of the church will transcend the foibles of mere mortal men, mortal men uh, sinners. And, um, of course, we look at the situation today and we find something very different. I mean, I mean we're talking about an era uh, that actually was just sort of leading into the next century with the uh, Babylonian exile of the church, with the great Western schism, all of that in the 14th, 14th century, right, the 1300s. And uh, the scandals that played out there when you had um, first, well, one, and then two, and then three men um, claiming to be the popes, and all of them claiming that they were elected by essentially the, the same cardinals or successors of the same cardinals. Um, and it was very confusing, but the thing is uh, that everyone, uh, all three of the gentlemen, uh, whether he was in, in Rome or Avignon or Pisa, they all practiced the same faith. They all believed the same faith, and they all practiced the same faith. They all offered the same traditional Mass, the true Mass. And, um, and those who followed them, even though they did not agree on who was the, the, the true Pope, uh, they all held the same faith. So there was actually unity of faith there. Um, and unity of worship, even then. And again, it's a testimony to God's watchfulness over the church. That it astray, it's, that's a very far, far cry from where we are right now, where that unity has been destroyed, as it were, in the, in the Novus Ordo. It, it can't be destroyed in the true faith. In the true traditional Catholic faith, you must always have one true faith, and the worship that our Lord gave us, which all uh, derives from his holy sacrifice, on the cross and the holy sacrifice of the mass and uh, the true government of the church which must be based in catholic tradition the true church cannot lose that the false church can and and necessarily does when it rejects when it rejects catholic tradition it necessarily goes astray and we're watching that happening before our very eyes now in the Novus Ordo, mm -hmm. uh, with francis but in any case uh that's straying a little bit from our topic um if uh, the author of the question is, <coughs> is asking for my own personal opinion with regarding the Divine Comedy, I think it's <coughs> a central reading for all Catholics. <coughs> and I think it's not only a statement of the condition of the Church in Florence at that time, uh, during Dante's lifetime, I think it's a statement also of the indefectibility of the Church <coughs> in the face of uh, some very serious worldly obstacles. Mm -hmm. that the church perseveres throughout and endures and is indefectible. Mm -hmm. So I think it is a very important statement of the church's indefectibility at, uh, at that time and throughout all time. And um, I, I think it's uh, obviously a great, great work of, uh, of art uh, in the expression of the faith. I mean, there, there are things that Dante portrays, you know, like the different levels of hell for the different offenses, okay? And uh, there's, this is not actually doctrinal in the sense that it's defined dogma of the church that this, the, you know, the adulterers on the, are on this level of hell, and uh, you know the uh, traitors are on this level of hell. It's, it's not, it's not spelled out in the church's doctrine. But there's nothing in the Divine Comedy that in any way contradicts Catholic teaching either, and it all seems to 
very much accord with the teaching of the church. Mm. Okay. So uh, I heartily recommend it. And if one can, even if one can read it, even just pronouncing it in the original Italian, it's worth doing, even if you don't understand it at first. Mm. Having an English translation near, and then reading the Italian out loud, I, I think you get a certain, just the force of it is much more uh, impactful, I guess they would say these days. Okay, very good. Thank you, Father. Uh, then another email. This viewer says, I understand the traditional teaching of the church that those babies who die without baptism, including an abortion, cannot attain the beatific vision and will be in the limbo of the infants. But what happens to a child who dies in the womb due to a natural miscarriage before baptism is at all possible? It would seem odd that such a child would be forever excluded from heaven, though neither it nor the parents were at any fault for the loss of life. This has always confused me, and I would appreciate Father Jenkins' thoughts on this topic. Well, children are not um, excluded from heaven because of their own fault, as it were, of actual sin. I mean, the very fact that they're infants, uh, before they reach the age of reason, they're incapable of performing a moral act. Um, uh, that is to say, of uh, doing something out of love for God or rejecting the love for God and doing something that excludes him, you know, excludes his love. Um, the use of reason is necessary for that because one needs a conscience. One needs an active conscience, and conscience is actually a, it's, it's a function of the, of the reason, right? Um, practical, the practical reason. Uh, is, is where conscience resides. And until we have the use of that reason, you can't make a decision in conscience, and therefore a moral decision, which would you know, um, be a decision for or against God, really. Um, but anyway, that, that would take a, a bit of explanation there. But the, a child, before the age of reason, is not capable uh, of making a, uh, committing an actual sin. Okay. Um, so the child in the womb certainly would not be capable of committing moral, moral fault. And certainly the child is not lost because of the uh, fault of his parents. It was believed in the Old Testament that, uh, you know, God struck children blind, deaf, dumb, with leprosy because of some fault of their parents. Even the apostles asked our Lord one day, about some man, I, I guess, I think he was lame, and asked our Lord, uh, is this because of his sin or his parents' sin? Our Lord said it was neither one, right? So, <laughs> so uh, um, but the problem is uh, original sin. That there, is an, uh, there is a real uh, fault in original sin, not only on, on the part of Adam and Eve, but it comes down to us. It's a hereditary sin, as it were. You might think of it as hereditary diseases. We know what those are now. Um, uh, they can strike, you know, many members of the families, you know, or even whole families. Um, well, just as uh, the body can uh, be affected by such a hereditary disease in the very DNA constitution of the body, uh, so the soul, the soul actually can, can carry, as it were, um, that uh, 
the consequences of original sin committed by our first parents. And uh, we do. We're all conceived with that. Our souls are actually created by God in that condition. It's not God, what God willed. It wasn't the condition that he created Adam and Eve and their souls in. Um, but we have contracted that original sin by the very fact that we are members of the human race and descended, descended from Adam and Eve. Yeah, they made an answer. They made a decision for us long before we could make a decision for ourselves. Our godparents at baptism should realize that when they are answering for the child, um, they are, in a sense, answering with an act of faith on behalf of that child. And God allows them to answer, even as, let's say, original sin was is in the soul of the child because of the answer of our first parents. So, yes, uh, godparents can answer for the child to uh, allow that child to be baptized. Um, but in any case... Um, it is because of the original sin in that soul that that child comes into the world as a, a estranged from God. That is why we need the grace of baptism. That is why we need uh, the grace of our Lord's sacrifice on the cross to repair that, that sin, make reparation for that sin. So a child is not a child who dies in the womb is not condemned because of his own fault nor because of his parents' fault, but because he's been conceived in original sin. And the only remedy for that is divine grace. And the only way that sanctifying grace can enter that soul is by an act of faith, hope, and charity on the part of the child himself. Um, um, or the waters of baptism. Right? And the child in the womb is incapable of performing an act of faith, hope, and charity. Um, it'll be a long time before the child uh, has the capability of doing that. But, um, but that, that's why the godparents' faith answers for the child already then. But the child needs the grace of God and needs our Lord Jesus Christ and the power of his death upon the cross to redeem that child, need it applied to his soul through the grace of baptism. The child dies without that. And there's nothing, I mean, God has said that uh, that is necessary by necessity. Um, necessity of precept, necessity of means. And um, that doesn't mean that God can't give the grace otherwise. But the teaching of the church is God only gives the grace without baptism. That God gives that grace um, to a soul that actually has faith and hope and incipient charity. The Catechism of the Council of Trent, with regard to the baptism of adults, teaches explicitly that the church is not, well, I'll put it in, in plain English, is not in a hurry to baptize adult converts, but she wants to delay that baptism to see that they are sincere and so that they learn the faith. Uh, that's not the same thing as, concern, as concerning the baptism of a child, of a little baby. The church is anxious to baptize the baby as soon as reasonably possible. But, and so the Catechism of the Council of Trent makes this distinction between the baptism of uh, babies, infants, and the baptism of adults. The church says, uh, the church deems it best to wait um, to form that soul of the adult 
Um, it is understood the baby is going to be raised in the faith. The adult is a convert who has not been raised in the faith and has to be formed in the faith. Therefore, the church says, give that soul time to really prepare itself for the grace of baptism. But the church also says, Catechism of the Council of Trent, with the baptism of adults, that if that soul uh, were to appear before God for judgment without having been baptized, the, the soul of that adult, if that adult did not receive the salutary waters of the sacrament of baptism, and it was not through his own fault, uh, that he had the intention to be baptized, and that he had the faith, and the intention to be baptized, and he also had contrition for his sins. The church says that it is the church's teaching that that would avail him unto grace, sanctifying grace, and justification from his sins. Not just justification from his sins, but grace as well. Um, this is quite contrary to the, to the teaching of a Father Leonard Feeney you've heard about. Uh, but it's also quite contrary to the teaching of the uh, baptism of desire people who think any vague desire to be a nice guy, you know, automatically means you're a candidate for baptism of desire. It doesn't work that way. They're the liberals who've expanded the meaning of baptism of desire to include practically everybody who had a nice thought. <laughs> you know, this is what Father Feeney was reacting against. Unfortunately, Father Feeney, the Jesuit, reacted by denying the reality of baptism of desire at all. <coughs> um, he did agree that it could justify you. He just didn't agree if you could sanctify you. And so he asked himself in his book, uh, uh, Bread of Life. Bread of Life, yeah, thank you. Uh, um, can sanctifying grace justify? Uh, can baptism of desire justify you from sin? Yes. Can it sanctify you? No. Okay. If you die having been justified through the baptism of desire, will you go to heaven? No. If you die not having been justified, or having been justified by the baptism of desire, will you go to hell? No. <clears throat> Flat no. Where will you go? I don't know, and neither do you. As though he's inventing some tertium quid, some third possible state that the church doesn't know about and hasn't, hasn't spoken of yet. He's not talking about purgatory, obviously. <laughs> and um, so, in any case, um, but the reason I'm, I'm mentioning all of this is because when we talk about the child who dies in the womb, it's an, as sad as it may be, um, we have to bow our heads to the wisdom of God who knows, you know, uh, what is best and uh, what will actually provide the salvation for the salvation of the most souls, or the, the, uh, the greatest love for God of souls in heaven. Um, the, um, and perhaps the good of that very soul of that child, because the parent who loses a child like that, uh, first of all, I shouldn't think of losing the child. Um, yes, they've lost them in this life and whatever hopes they have, but there are so many parents whose hopes are disappointed and worse than disappointed by the way children grow up and the people they become. And they're very severely hurt and filled with anxiety. They fear that their children are going to be lost and will suffer forever in the, in the fires of hell. And the children who die in the womb like that are not going to suffer in the fires of hell. They're, in fact, they're not going to suffer. 
they are in limbo of the infants, uh, which the church teaches us is a place of natural happiness. And uh, can they know God? Well, they have, they have human souls with the power to know truth and to love goodness, and uh, on a natural level. And uh, they can have a, a, certainly a theological knowledge of God, a natural, natural theology uh, of God, and can know who their creator is. And it's not even forbidden to teach that I know of that uh, parents of those children can actually visit them. I mean, we know that our Lord from the cross went in his soul. His soul went, he descended into hell. That's how it's represented in the, in the creed. Meaning he went to the limbo of the just to inform Abraham and all of the just souls of the Old Testament that the redemption was accomplished and to lead them from that place. And they weren't there suffering. They were waiting for the news of the redemption. As our Lord said, Abraham saw my day and he rejoiced to see that I had come into the world. So uh, Abraham from that limbo of the just was aware that, that Christ finally had come into the world. And he rejoiced at that. Oh, that doesn't happen in hell of hells, right? Um, and there's even talk about how at the end of the world, yes, the world will be remade. It will be remade for those souls. And they will dwell here. They will be reincarnated. Their bodies will be restored to them as the rest of us will undergo a resurrection. And that they will live a life of natural happiness here on earth. But it's very important to hold to this point, because if you, if you say, well, they, they can be saved in the womb without the sacrament of baptism, without the virtues of faith, hope, and charity, this goes totally contrary to the church's teaching on the necessity of that supernatural grace of God in the soul to be saved. As soon as you start hedging or fudging on that, because of, you know, call it sentimentality or natural reasons or whatever, You've just destroyed the whole necessity of that supernatural grace in the soul to actually get to heaven. Uh, this is what the Novus Ordo is doing. The Novus Ordo has basically done away with the limbo of the infants. Um, basically, it's pretending that every aborted child goes straight to heaven. And uh, so they're much better off, actually, than, than any of us who are still uh, unsure of what our fate is going to be. But uh, it's all based on sentimentality and trying to serve, um, you know, people's feelings <clears throat> rather than the doctrine of the church. There's a fact, though, that without the grace of God in the soul, there cannot be salvation. They cannot go to heaven. They cannot see God in heaven in the beatific vision. And uh, there cannot be the grace of the soul that is conceived in original sin and that Sin has to be removed by the grace of God through the virtues of faith, hope, and charity. Actually, what our Lord has given us as the normal means, as it were, of having that, that uh, original sin and, and, and its penalties removed from the soul is the sacrament of baptism. Okay. So, um, in any case, uh, I hope that gives some kind of an answer. Sure. Of sure. Somebody. Yes. yes, thank you, Father. Okay, next email from a viewer who uh, is watching one of the uh, catechism lessons uh, on our YouTube channel. And they say, Father, um, in one of those videos of Lesson 16, you said 
those who investigate the claims of the Catholic Church and don't have a mind to join if the claims are found to be true cannot be saved. But if the present Catholic Church in Rome is false, what church is there to join? Where would one get baptized or take communion? Well, if you say, if the present Catholic Church in Rome is false, well, if it's false, it can't be the Catholic Church. That's the, that's the point. It's a modern, uh, modern modernist, novus, new order, um, non-Catholic, even anti-Catholic church. But it can't be the Catholic Church if it's false. <coughs> so the point is, when I say that one who investigates the claims of the true Catholic Church to belief, you know, accept it as the truth, I'm not talking about modernism. I'm not talking about what the monitors have done. I'm not talking about <clears throat> the new order of things. Now, I realize what this uh, gentleman or lady is saying here is that people today look there if they're looking for Catholicism. And they say, well, this is Catholicism. What is it? Perhaps he's what he, what he is also thinking is if they look there and they see that and they reject that because they know that's not true, that that's false, are they rejecting Catholicism? And the answer is no, they're not rejecting Catholicism. They're rejecting the Novus Ordo. <clears throat> Every now and then somebody would say to me, well, Father, you know, I used to be Catholic, but I don't do that anymore. I'd say, oh, really? When, you know, when were you in the church? Oh, well, I'm, I'm 29 years old, or I'm 30 or 40 years old. Well, you know, they just celebrated the 60th anniversary of the beginning of Vatican II. So by the time they actually came into the world, and uh, the, the, the only church they knew was the New Order Church, uh, basically spawned by Vatican II and midwifed, as it were, by the, well, conceived by the modernists, actually. And so they say they left the Catholic Church, but the fact is they didn't really leave the Catholic Church. They left the, the, the Novus Ordo, the New Order. They said there's nothing there. There's nothing there. And I have to agree with them. There's nothing there. Um, there are occasional vestiges of the traditional Catholic faith, um, almost like it's someone wearing your mother's dress and her shoes and maybe even her hat, but it's not your mom. You know, you recognize it's not really your mother. And so, you know, you, you have to tell people, look, well, you know, you, you never really knew what the Catholic Church was. You were raised in the, in the, in the modernist Novus Ordo, which the Catholic Church historically rejected ahead of time, even warned about. St. Pius X warned against this. Um, so we shouldn't be mistaken in, in, in thinking that that's the Catholic Church. And you try to educate them a little bit at what the traditional Catholic Church really is and what the church, church taught. Fortunately, there's still a wealth of information out there that still exists about what the traditional Catholic Church is. A wealth of books. I mean, the modernists tried to destroy them by dumping and gutting their libraries and taking them out to dumpsters to be burned. But there's still a wealth of information, the traditional catechisms. As Father, uh, as uh, Don Morris said, who wrote the book Murder in the 33rd Degree, he said, well, the first thing you need to do is get yourself a catechism and start learning what the faith really taught. And I agree with him about that. <laughs> but make sure it's a traditional catechism. Yeah. <coughs> so I, I would just say, if somebody rejects the, the new order, uh, which is being uh, propagated by, from the Vatican right now, uh, then they haven't really rejected Catholicism. They might have looked into it to think, okay, this is Catholicism, 
do I accept it or, uh, or do I not accept it? And they said, well, I don't accept that. So uh, they think in their mind that they're rejecting Catholicism, but the fact is they're not rejecting Catholicism. They're rejecting a, uh, an imposter. So uh, if that's the question, I mean, where, where's the responsibility? Well, the, you know, I, that is not Catholicism, and rejecting that, they're not rejecting Catholicism. I would just try to get the message to them that if they're really looking for Catholicism, they have to find the true traditional Catholic faith, her doctrine, her worship, and her government ultimately dominated by tradition, which is the work of the Holy Ghost guiding her. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, the final email we wanted to get to tonight, Father, on the fewness of the saved. Shua mm -hmm. writes in and says, Thank you, Father, for your clear and insightful teaching on matters relating to the true Catholic faith. My question concerns the teaching, although never dogmatically declared, that the majority of souls of adult Catholics, those who have reached the age of reason, and all those extra ecclesium who are, are damned. It seems to be the teaching of Christ that, quote, many are called, but few are chosen, and that they are many who, quote, try to enter through the narrow gate, but they are few who find it. Uh, it says, when Christ died on the cross, one of his most terrible sufferings was the souls of the reprobate who would not accept his teachings and the sacrifices that this would entail. It is also the opinion of church fathers like St. Alphonsus Liguri that most souls are damned, and mystics like St. Leonard of Port Maurice and the mystic St. Bridget of Sweden uh, also had very harsh things to say about the destiny of souls. So, Father, if this teaching of the fewness of the saved is true, why has it never been infallibly de decreed by Holy Mother Church? Why has the Church not defined that as a dogma of faith? It hasn't been necessary to do so. The Church defines dogmas when they are, it is necessary. Nowadays, I mean, it might, you might say, well, it's necessary because of modernism. Just everybody's saved. I mean, you know, you die in the Novus Ordo, maybe you get cremated, you know, they have you in a little urn up there, and they're celebrating your, your life and your death, and you're up there teeing off on, you know, the par five, fourth hole, and this is your life, and, it, you know, everybody is, it, it's like a Nova Zero happy hour, what used to be a funeral, time to pray for the poor soul that has gone to God for judgment, is now just a celebration of life, and, uh, and like a Nova Zero happy hour, in white, and joy, and all. It's all very worldly. Uh, it's, Imagine, I mean, it's a terrible thing to, to abandon souls like that when they need our prayers. But this is the Novus Ordo. <laughs> so, um, uh, nowadays, you know, the traditional Catholic Church would certainly uh, be, let's say, prone to define a dogma about the fewness of the saved when it was necessary to do so. But in the past, it was not necessary to do so. Catholics in the past, traditionally, we're very well aware of this. And uh, I don't know of anybody who questioned it, really. Um, uh, it never seemed to be a point of controversy in the church. You, I, to my knowledge, and for what it's worth, I don't recall ever having heard of an ecclesiastical common, uh, heresy or uh, controversy with regard to, to this question of um, the numbers of souls that went to hell relative to those that were saved. Mm -hmm. And that is what would actually move the church to define the dogma, uh, to make it absolutely crystal clear to people, so they wouldn't be deceived. Mm -hmm. 
Um, you know, so if you look at it from the standpoint of modernism today, you might say, well, that's the point that needs to be made. And it's because, precisely because of the modernism that is purveying this like universality of, of salvation, except for traditional Catholics, of course, uh, but that everybody else is saved just for having uh, nice thoughts. You know, I mean, Francis has even gone so far as to say you don't even need faith to be saved. Despite what St. Paul says, without faith it's impossible to please God. As long as you're a nice guy and you're nice to people, you're going to be saved. Yeah. Uh, that's the message today. Uh, if, that, if that had been voiced at any other time in the church's history, it would have been condemned. And um, it um, very, very possibly the church would have actually issued a dogmatic statement about that. But it was never an issue until the modernists. And because of the modernists and because of the control they have now, they will not condemn <laughs> that teaching at all. It is their teaching. Yeah. And it is very deceitful. Yeah. Well, uh, very damaging to uh, souls. Speaking of the, the modernists, one of the last things we wanted to get into tonight was uh, today, October 11th, is uh, actually the 60th anniversary of uh, the opening session of the Second Vatican Council. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I guess today, uh, actually today, uh, Francis offered a uh, 60th anniversary mass in commemoration of the, uh, of the Second uh, Vatican Council. And um, I guess he gave a, uh, a, um, a speech of sorts at this anniversary mass. And he, um, we, we have an article with um, a lot of his, his quotes from that, from that talk. And I'd just like to, to pick through some of them, Father, because there's... Um, there's so much in here that I that I think needs to be needs to be commented on. But uh, one of the um, the main things he says was that this this Second Vatican Council uh, it was quote one great response to the question Do you love me posed by Christ to his disciples. Um, what do you think about that, Father? Um, it's typical, Francis. Um... So that's the question, you know, that was being answered there. Do you love me? Um, what does it actually say, though? What, what does it really mean? I guess he's saying that, well, Vatican II was the answer, yes. He doesn't actually say that in the address, as far as I know, but I think the implication is this is the Church's response to the question by saying, like St. Peter said, Lord, you know that I love you, right? I, thou knowest that I love thee. As though that's what Vatican II said, uh, is it, in fact, what Vatican II said, or did Vatican II actually compromise the love for our Lord? And um, uh, you look at the aftermath of Vatican II, and you see how it plays out, and you see what was implicit in Vatican II. Some say that what followed upon Vatican II were abuses. There were a handful of, of, of plotters who decided to... Uh, twist Vatican II to serve their own purposes. And that was totally contrary to, to the actual meaning of the real Vatican II. They talk about the spirit of Vatican II. They invoked that to do all this damage. But I mean, that flies in the face of reality. The fact is the bishops who were at Vatican II, the ones who were doing all this voting, <laughs> came back from Vatican II and implemented these changes as to what they understood Vatican II was all about. And the changes that they implemented were disastrous. And they kept instituting them, and they kept, they instituted them, and they kept driving them and driving them and driving them. And the more damage they did, 
their answer was, well, we need more change. We need more change. We haven't changed fast enough. That's why there's a problem. More of the medicine of Vatican II, more of the medicine of Vatican II, even though it was clearly poisoning the church. So uh, to say that it was really a matter of abuse, uh, contrary to the real meaning of Vatican II, well, if the, if the bishops who were the ones who voted Vatican II and implemented Vatican II, if they did not know what Vatican II was all about, that tells you that the council was a total fiction and a fraud. If those who are actually voting on these documents don't know what they really mean, their vote means nothing. It has no value whatsoever. The whole thing was a complete exercise in futility. It has no value as, a, as an ecumenical council of the church, or anything else for that matter. Um, I mean, this is common sense stuff. You take any assembly, and let's say, you know, you have people voting on things, and they have no idea what they mean. <laughs> you know, they come back, and they start implementing it, and you say, well, no, 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 they got it all wrong. Uh, they're invoking the spirit of Vatican II, which is what they what they think it meant or what they wanted it to mean, but, you know, that's not what it really says, right? That's, uh, they, they got it all wrong, but they're the ones who, whose votes implemented all of this stuff. So that is, I think, the biggest uh, indictment of Vatican II that anybody could give is that uh, the bishops who did the voting came back and implemented Vatican II and they didn't know what, what it was all about. Mm -hmm. Because it tells you, okay, then there was a big nothing. There was nothing there. It has no authority whatsoever. No authority whatsoever to even qualify as counsel of the Catholic Church. Um, <laughs> but uh, the fact is that the, the bishops uh, did understand what Vatican II was all about. And they voted for these uh, documents. Uh, they came back and they voted according to what they understood these documents really mean. Uh, the documents are, in, are, in, are uh, ambiguous, uh, designedly ambiguous, so that uh, you could basically mine Vatican II for just about anything you want. Mm -hmm. And uh, But they said, okay, we understand what these documents really mean, and that's what we're going to put into practice. And that's what they did. It was a revolution. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, you know, this was not an exercise in, in the love for our Lord, um, as you see by what they actually did. It resulted in a massive loss of faith in people and um, uh, emptied the seminaries, practically. And the seminary, I mean, we have the historical record. When Vatican II was called, there were, in this country alone, uh, 50,000 seminarians 25,000 religious orders and 25,000 diocesan seminaries, roughly evenly split. And within 10 years after Vatican II finished, uh, um, that number had dropped from 50,000 to fewer than 10,000. Now, you, you talk about you know, like 80% of the population of any nation, any city, uh, just disappearing in a matter of 10 years. You'd think this is a catastrophe of epic proportions. But this is what it did to the seminaries. Mm -hmm. And uh, many of those who were there uh, 10 years after Vatican II were homosexuals. And we know that. It's a matter of historical mm -hmm. record. Mm -hmm. The seminaries were largely in the control of the, of the homosexuals mm -hmm. at that time. And they acknowledged that. You know, there were a lot of inquests about that. Yeah. And uh, the religious life, too. I mean, the number of uh, religious in the, in the country, I think, were 140,000 religious sisters. Uh, within 10 years after Vatican II, the number was under 100,000. 50,000 of them of those vocations disappeared. And um, there were about 90,000 religious still left 10 years after Vatican II. And again, many of them were living very secular lives, 
And in, in some cases, like the Immaculate Heart of Mary sisters out in California, very immoralized, mm-hmm. um, having given themselves up to um, modern psychology and all that that does. Yeah. Um, so in any case, uh, Vatican II was, was uh, a, a revolution of the church. The church was poisoned by it. it. To say that it was the church's answer to the question, do you love me? Then I think any reasonable person would say the, the answer given by Vatican II and thereafter was no, mm-hmm. frankly. Yeah. And if these are the fruits of Vatican II, Father, I think uh, our Lord's words would apply where he said, by your fruits you shall know them. And uh, this, I mean, it definitely continues today. And Francis himself even, um, and many of his uh, fellow Novus Ordoites, um, well, well complain today about all of the, I mean, in this, in this very same address, Francis complains about the division in, in the, mm. the church, and, um, but his, his solution to that is, is more Vatican II, more, mm. more modernism, uh, just, just insanity, mm. one would think. But um, mm-hmm. another, another quote I wanted to, uh, to, to read from him when, when he was talking about the Second Vatican Council, Francis says, quote, to rekindle her love for the Lord, the Church, for the first time in her history, devoted a council to examining herself and reflect on her nature and mission. She saw herself once more as a mystery of grace generated by love. She saw herself anew as the people of God, the body of Christ, the, the living temple of the Holy Spirit. Mm. Is any of that true about Vatican II? Vatican II, as a revolution, was considering, well, what is the real nature of the church, right? And it's been doing that ever since. Francis in his Synod on Synodality is just an extension of that, playing out of that. Um, it, it, is any of it true? Some of it is true in the sense that uh, this council was called, he says, to re-examine what the church is. And um, to say that what came out of Vatican II is not what, what went into Vatican II, right? Uh, John XXIII had called the council. He first announced the council on January 25th, 1959 already. He says it was the result of this great inspiration he had, which is not true, uh, because he discussed with people ahead of time what his plans to have at this council. It, without any idea, mention it was an inspiration. He was actually talking about it before that with people, discussing it beforehand. And the way he presents it was, well, I just had this sudden great inspiration to have a council on it all, suddenly. And, of course, you know, modernism is, is, is based on pure fantasy. And we would say they're fantastic lies, but the modernist doesn't consider it lies. He considers it to be, well, that's basically uh, uh, like a higher reality for him, his fantasy. But John Twenty-Third, it certainly was a matter of his fantasy. He said it was going to be a pastoral council, not doctrinal. And uh, that's interesting because that certainly would have been the first time in the history of the church the church had met not to consider points of doctrine of faith, but uh, merely a pastoral council to talk about our approach to the world. Um, there was there had never been a, a council of the church to do that. So when Francis says it was historic and something new and different. Um, it's true, but notice what he's saying here. In the passage you read that the church had had to sort of um, take stock of who she was after all this time and, and realize that the church needed to somehow 
do a makeover. <laughs> the church, somehow, the implication, <coughs> excuse me, had lost its way. And the church needed to kind of reinvent itself now, right? Um, and yeah, I'd say that's, that's exactly the point of Vatican II, to reinvent the, the church. I mean, John the 23rd actually comes out and says it, uh, that in the past, it's lamentable that um, the church has employed the, the medicine of like rigor and condemnation against error. And now we have to um, show our friendly side, you know, uh, and we have to show our, uh, what, 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 that we're, basically we're going to use the medicine of mercy now. We're not going to uh, um, use the discipline, almost like a parent saying, well, yes, I mean, I was severe with you before, and now I'm just going to coddle you and, you know, basically show how merciful I am. And, uh, of course, you know, if you have, uh, let's say, recalcitrant children, um, well, um, they're going to take advantage of that. And, uh, but this is the modernist way. Um, you know, as I say, uh, this, this leads to a rejection of the faith itself, and all doctrine, the very idea of doctrine, something unchangeable truths, is something abhorrent to the modernist. It's abhorrent to Francis. And the process of making it so actually uh, came to us through Vatican II. You read, you read uh, John the 23rd's announcement of the Council. You read his opening address to the Council. And he does talk about doctrine. He talks about the need to uphold doctrine, uphold doctrine, uphold doctrine. But again, there's a certain ambiguity when he says, well, the Church has been very severe in upholding the doctrines and condemning errors, and now we're going to show our, our other maternal side, and we're not going to use that anymore. As though he's saying, well, I know better. They, were, they got it all wrong. But I know better, and now we're going to adopt a new approach because I know better than all of them. Um, so, uh, I mean, again, modernists have an unbounded pride and audacity that they think they know better than everybody else, right? And it's their job to uh, make the church bow to the um, common opinion of the world according to what they think it should be, <laughs> right? <laughs> so like real Democrats, they say, we believe in democracy, we believe in democracy, <laughs> we believe in, you know, all people having a voice who can tell us what the faith should be right now. But when it comes right down to it, we're the ones who are going to decide what that should be. We're going to tell them what should, they should be saying, and we're going to then be the one who are going to represent what they say to you, to the church, as to what we say the faith should be. So they say democracy, 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 but in re in reality, they are like the supreme autocrats. They are the oligarchs who say, well. Yes, the people have a voice, and we are the ones who, who best represent the people. So our voice is the one that really needs to be heard and prevail over everybody else. This is modernism. And that's what came uh, to the foreground uh, and took the helm. You know, when he, when he first actually opened the council, John the Twenty Third talked about the three years of preparation. 
yet had gone into laying the groundwork for the council. He didn't happen to mention, of course, because well, he, he, wouldn't, he couldn't know what was coming to happen maybe the next, during the next week. He opened the council within the first week after talking about the three years of ardent preparation that went in. The four, four of the shamans that were prepared wound up in the wastebasket. The modernists scrapped them because they didn't like what they said. They were too traditional. They wanted to start over and rewrite everything in modernist jargon. So here's John Thornton, they're opening the council. He talks about uh, the valiant work of those who labored so intensively for the three years leading up to the council. And, uh, and then within a week, uh, their work had, had wound up in the trash bag, the, the, the wastebasket, totally trashed. As the modernists decided to take over, you know, on, on the liturgy, first thing they decided to talk about, mass, as a first target. So, um, you know, but what does this show you? Mm -hmm. You know, but, but Francis was also decrying uh, the polarization. You saw that, Tom, right? What do you make of that, by the way? What, uh, do, what, do, what do you <laughs> interpret polarization to be? Because this is in headlines for people in the world to see. Well, you're a, people, you're a person in the world, right? <laughs> you read that. What do you make of that? Uh, well, it's typical modernism, I think. Typical, uh, it's what demagogues do. I think they uh, purposely try and um, set, set people uh, apart. Uh, from one another. Um, but he says we have to overcome that. You say polarization is that like breaking up into factions, right? Yeah. But he's saying that uh, we all have to overcome that and come together with Vatican II now, right? Mm. So isn't that, I mean, isn't he saying we've got to, we've got to overcome the polarization? Yeah, but um, not, not in any, any Catholic sense at all. I think <laughs> that's the, uh, that's the, uh, language of the the antichrist or the one one world religion where um you know everybody gets along great uh hunky-dory and there's no uh no no set truth nothing that that anyone has to actually uh defend or stand by there's no definitely no dogmas or anything like that it's just um all one big big happy family um not really anything that you're you're actually fighting for not really any truth whatsoever um, but it's just typical wishy-washy, um, feel-good. Would you I would think. you agree that Francis is the most polarizing person on the planet right now? Well, of course, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, he, well, when I, if I said, why would I say that? Why would I even ask you that? Well, he, uh, I, I think he, one of his um, quotes here that I, I really wanted to read that I think um, illustrates this is he, he talks about the, I'll just read the quote here. He says, let us be careful, both the progressivism that lines up behind the world and, quote-unquote, the traditionalism that longs for a bygone world are not evidence of love, but of infidelity. They are forms of a Pelagian selfishness that puts our own taste and plans above the love that pleases God, the simple and humble and faithful love that Jesus asked of Peter. Um, just absolutely not true at all, <laughs> Father, but he the the one uh group of people in the whole world who are trying to uh establish bring about peace by holding fast to the doctrines of the catholic church those are the people uh that he attacks the most is the the traditionalists um yeah. that we we that that we're we're being the ones that are that are um we are being polarized yeah we're, we're <laughs> the ones right. that aren't that aren't being faithful when when we are the ones who want true peace we know that the only way the true yeah. peace is going to come about is by holding the kingship of Christ. To, yeah, by holding fast to the doctrines of the true Catholic Church, mm -hmm. and he, um, we are the ones. The, we are the only ones that he 
attacks. You know, I mentioned this. If you read through everything that he says, no matter what Francis is talking about, um, everything he ever says is just this this fluff, this <laughs> meaningless um, euphemisms. Nothing is ever uh, very forceful or candid or clear, except for when he's talking about traditional Catholics. That is the only time that he ever seems to actually speak freely and forcefully. Um, and that's, that's when he's talking about the Or condemning the idea of dogma, right? Yeah. You know, Tato, you feel that way. If you think that way now, you should have been with me in the classrooms in Innsbruck, Austria, listening to the professors, the Jesuit professors talking in German. <laughs> you should have heard, heard that. Talk about, talk about just jargon. And, um, uh, until it came to saying something got through to the faith. Yeah. Then they became very, very clear yeah. and very specific. Otherwise, it was all just very, very nebulous, sort of like getting a mouth of shaving cream, yeah. you know. And, um, but, you know, it's, it's funny, Francis here, he is like the Pope of polarization. He's like the, the, the master of marginalization, you know. And he's talking about bringing them in from the margins, right? He's talking about overcoming polarization, but he's the one who's polarizing everyone. Anyone who would oppose the New World Order, anyone who would oppose uh, the left, the, the agenda of the World Economic Forum, uh, anyone who is against uh, the idea of global uh, climate change and so on, uh, was uh, against the uh, forced vaccination of people and so on, uh, if you want to call it that. Um, you know, he, he, he was... Talk about, um, you know, polarizing those people and marginalizing those people. I mean, he was a very strong, strong voice about that. No bones about it. It's the only clear thing he ever really said when he was condemning them. And uh, by the way, about this whole idea, and, and I mean, look, when he talks about the traditional faith, he talks about the traditional mass. You see the, the, this Novus Ordo Pope of polarization at, at work just hammering away, right? The traditional mass, those who love the traditional mass, those who have the traditional faith. Um, this is the man who says, as I mentioned earlier, you don't even have to have faith. You can be an atheist and be saved and go to heaven just by being a nice guy. Now you think, okay, well, see, he's being anti-polar. He's not polarizing people who don't have faith now. He's because he's including them. <laughs> but he's also excommunicating St. Paul who said, you know, without God, it is impossible. Without faith, it is impossible to please God, right? Um, so he wants to, uh, let's say, demarginalize the atheists by marginalizing St. Paul and saying, well, what he said, you can't go by that. Mm -hmm. um, the the um, question of uh, Francis and his polarization, though, you know, people should stop and think for a minute and realize, well, wait a minute, this man is regarded by like millions of people today as being, quote-unquote, the vicar of Christ, even though he himself has rejected that title. They regard him as the vicar of Christ. And you ask yourself, okay, he condemns polarization, supposedly. Well, you look at our Lord Jesus Christ and you ask, Does he also condemn our Lord Jesus Christ for saying, he who is not with me is against me? I mean, talk about polarization, right? He who does not gather with me scatters. These are the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Francis 
doesn't like that kind of talk. It's polarizing, right? There's an actual truth here, right? And our Lord says that, um, you know, going therefore, preach the gospel to all nations, baptizing them in the Father and Son of the Ghost. He who believes and is baptized shall be saved, and he who does not believe will be condemned. That's very, very polarizing. St. Matthew chapter 25, where our Lord talks about the judgment with the sheep and the goats. That's very polarizing. You read the Gospels and you find the true Jesus Christ is very polarizing. It's true or false. It's good or bad. Right? It's good or evil. That's very polarizing. Francis wants to do away with all that. He really does, by what he says, speak contrary to Christ. And what he describes as being evil is exactly what our Lord himself said. You know, um, that there is good and evil, and they are opposed to each other, necessarily, indelibly uh, imposed to each other. There's true and false. And it was precisely because he was speaking the truth that he was crucified. Right? Uh, he would not negotiate that. Our Lord was not, our Lord was not negotiating with the world and uh, making his peace with it. What you said here is, is interesting here. I, I was looking at that quote from his, uh, Francis's address. So let us be careful, both the progressivism that lines up behind the world and the traditionalism that longs for a bygone world are not evidence of love, but of, but of infidelity, he cautioned. They are forms of a Pelagian selfishness that puts our own tastes and plans above the love that pleases God, the simple, humble, and faithful love that Jesus asked of Peter. I beg your pardon uh, here, but uh, the love that Jesus asked of Peter was a love that was based upon our Lord being condemned to death and Peter denying him. And uh, that was our Lord's way of having Peter make amends for his denials. This is the same Francis who says atheists can be saved who deny our Lord. And they don't have to, have, they don't have to love our Lord. But they're still saved. They can still be saved. And he talks about Pelagianism. You know, the first time I remember Francis bringing up Pelagianism was when he was talking about the million rosaries that traditional Catholics were offering for him way back in 2013. He mocked them for that. He mocked them. He says a million rosaries that, that smacks of Pelagianism and even neo-Gnosticism, he said, as if he has any concept of what these things actually mean. But Pelagius was a British priest of the 5th century who taught that we can be sanctified by our own natural efforts, that we can make our own moral decisions that actually make us saints. And you don't need a supernatural grace from God to become holy and pleasing to God. You can sanctify yourself just by making yourself righteous, just by making good decisions. Augustine, St. Augustine condemned that. He wrote the treatise on grace, De Grazia, against Pelagius. So, again, I mean, here's the man who has the nerve to liken traditional Catholics uh, to be like uh, indulging in Pelagian selfishness, 
who says you can sanctify yourself by your own efforts, like an atheist who can actually go to heaven because he's nice and kind, okay? He doesn't need supernatural grace of God. I mean, he doesn't have that faith. Um, all he has to do is just be kind and good to people. That is Pelagianism. That's like textbooks Pelagianism. It's exactly what Francis is accusing other, others of. This is the mark of, a, of an art note. Well, an ignorant man who doesn't know what he's saying, or if he does know what he's saying, then it's the most flagrant hypocrisy. Right? Accuse your adversary, those you've chosen to be your adversary because they disagree with you, and tar them with a brush that actually applies to you. Well, that certainly applies to him. But, uh, you know, I find that uh, that whole uh, address that, that Francis gives here to be, well, it should be a red flag to any real Catholic who still has the faith. And uh, he should come away thinking, well, you know, this is so outrageously false. I cannot continue supporting this charade, this, 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 this fraud of Vatican II. Uh, I mean... You know, Archbishop Vigano came out and actually said it, right? It was a revolution from beginning to end. It was designed to be a revolution. You can't rehabilitate it. It should simply be left behind, buried and left behind. That's what, That was his, uh, just a, his statement on this. I actually went through uh, John the Twenty-Third's opening address to the council 60 years before uh, this statement of Francis. John the 23rd opened the council, October 11th, right? You know that. And uh, on the Feast of the Maternity of Mary, 1962. And um, he, he has some very interesting s statements to make, and I know it's uh, getting a little uh, long, but if I can just quickly go through some of these things. Again, they're very revealing to us now. We look back at these things and we see how revealing they are. We look back <coughs> after 60 years of Vatican II, the beginning of Vatican II, and we see where we are right now, where it has taken us, and we see the actual seeds of this. The present moment are right here in this, in this statement of John the Twenty-Third and calling Vatican II. He says, <coughs> as I mentioned, it was a sudden inspiration. The decision to hold an ecumenical council came to us capital U, right, the pontifical plural there, in the first instance, in a sudden flash of inspiration, he says. We communicated this decision without elaboration to the Sacred Council of Cardinals on that memorable January 25th, 1959, the Feast of St. Paul's Conversion. So that's how he introduced it. He says, the response was immediate. It is though some ray of supernatural light had entered the minds of all present. It was reflected in their faces. It shone from their eyes. We have something almost like... Um, this is really Hollywood here. <laughs> At once the world was swept by a wave of enthusiasm, and men everywhere began to wait eagerly for the celebration of this council. This is fantasy. It's pure modernist fantasy. And then the very next sentence he says is, for three years, the arduous work of preparation continued. And then within a week of this speech, it was scrapped. Right. What does that tell you? That's the historical reality of it all. 
so much with all of that burning enthusiasm, like, let's get to work here. Um, there were plotters at work determining how this council was going to go. They were going to take it over. And they knew they could because they had an ally. They had an ally in the Vatican. And then John the Twenty Third went out and condemned the pessimistic voices, the, the naysayers, I mean, the traditionalists, I don't know. Sounds very much like Francis today about the traditional. She says, in the daily exercise of our pastoral office, it sometimes happens that we hear certain opinions which disturb us, opinions expressed by people who, though fired with a commendable zeal for religion, are lacking in sufficient prudence and judgment in their evaluation of events. So here we have people who are lacking in prudence and judgment. And what are they saying? Here's what they're saying. They can see nothing but calamity and disaster in the present state of the world. Now, you read that today, and you ask yourself, these are the people who were prudent and had good judgment. These are the people he's talking about here. They say over and over that this modern age of ours, in comparison with past ages, is definitely deteriorating. And we look at where we are right now. We say they were prophets. They saw what was coming here. And he's actually condemning them. Just like Francis. Same approach as Francis. One would think from their attitude that history, that great teacher of life, had taught them nothing. Boy, if we wanted to talk about the modernists and Francis himself, we could use these same words. We just put the name of Francis and his bishops in here. And we say, I mean, he's promoting all the homosexuals into positions of power in the church in his church, in the Vatican II church. And what a disaster, endless disasters. They seem to imagine that in the days of the earlier councils, everything was as it should be, so far as doctrine and morality and the church's rightful liberty were concerned. No, nobody was saying that. Nobody imagined that. Only John the Twenty-Third imagined. He imagined that they imagined that. They didn't need to imagine it. There's a realist. They knew the history, and because they knew the history, they were concerned about what he was cooking up. He says, we feel that we must disagree with these prophets of doom, who are always forecasting worse disasters, as though the end of the world were at hand. This is the man who would not reveal the third secret of Fatima. He would not reveal the third secret of Fatima. He was deliberately, consciously rejecting that, and he was forging ahead with his own idea about he, John the Twenty-Third, how he was going to save the world with his smile, with the power of his personality. Present indications are that the human family is on the threshold of a new era. We must recognize here the hand of God, who as the years roll by, is ever directing men's efforts, whether they realize it or not, towards the fulfillment of the inscrutable designs of his providence, wisely arranging everything, even adverse human fortune, for the church is good. The new era, that all of this is working together for the church is good. The man who would not reveal the third secret of Fatima is now calling his counsel in the, in, instead of that. And he's saying, oh, these prophets of dooms don't, don't know what they're talking about. We know better. We know the church is on the verge of a new glorious springtime. And we're the ones who are going to usher it in by our counsel. 
than the words of Our Lady at Fatima? No. You know what Our Lady said at Fatima? About how um, people have showed contempt for her Immaculate Heart. I mean, I can't think of anything more explicitly contemptuous of the Immaculate Heart of Mary and what she had to reveal to us at Fatima, her warnings at Fatima, than these words of this man. Out and out, blatant contempt for what she had to say. And then he goes on and he talks about the new state of affairs, affairs having a great advantage for the church. And that is the unwarranted intervention of the civil authorities. Well, you remember Vatican I. Garibaldi and his troops rolled in and terminated Vatican I uh, before it was actually even closed, right? Back in 1870. It's that, those words of, of John the Twenty-Third, though, that we have this great advantage now at calling a council because the civil authorities can't intervene. You know, they can't make trouble for us. They can't interfere with the council. And then you go to the end of the council and the last document, Dignitati Sumane Personi, the dignity of the human person, which talks about religious liberty, talks, crows about the wonder of religious liberty, and five times says that no one can restrain the practice of religion except the civil authorities when they deem it's necessary for the public good. Five times it gives the authority the public authorities, the power to control religious practice for the common good, for the public good. Talk about complete and abject surrender. Predicted by St. Pius X in Pescendi. It was all there. But there's a lot more to be said about this, and perhaps in a future program we should talk about it. Because here we have Francis in the egg, right? Here we have Francis in the nest, and we see what slithered out of that nest and became Francis now. It's a nest of vipers of modernism. Um, anyway, because of the hour here, I think it's best uh, that we uh, perhaps relegate this to a later question, though. One thing that I would say here, though, it does, I think, address this uh, question. Um, well, I'll tell you what. Three points, okay? okay? Very quickly. Here he says that the 21st Ecumenical Council, that's Vatican II, its intention is to give to the world the whole of that doctrine, which notwithstanding every difficulty and contradiction, has become the common heritage of mankind, to transmit it in all its purity, undiluted and undistorted. He talks about difficulties and contradictions. I'd like, I need to see the original statement to see if he's implying that there are contradictions within the doctrine or not. But notwithstanding contradictions, he might, be, he might mean that those who oppose it, but I'd have to check the original statement here. But he says, and it is our duty not just to guard this treasure as though it were some museum piece and we the curators. Who does that sound like? What does Francis say over and over again? as though he's simply taking his cue there. The faith, doc, doctrine, dogma is not just some museum piece for some stuffy old, you know, uh, uh, display. He constantly is saying that we find it right here in the opening of the council. 
And um, he says, now we need a fresh approach. And he says, the church has always opposed these errors, often condemned them with the utmost severity. Today, however, the Christ's bride prefers to use the bomb of mercy to the arm of severity. She believes that present needs are best served by explaining more fully the purport of her doctrine rather than by publishing condemnations. And that, I, I think, again, shows the hypocrisy of it all because right now, essentially, the ones who are being condemned are the traditionalists, right? The church wants to use a medicine of mercy, use the bomb of mercy rather than the arm of severity. And you see what Francis is, has turned his howitzers of modernism against the traditionalists. And this shows the blatant hypocrisy going on here. Um, we see the same thing going on in our own civil, civil government right now. We see uh, the weaponized... Um, Department of Justice actually uh, launched against, as it turns out, Christian after Christian, um, pro-lifer, right? Even rather uh, conservative uh, Catholics, I assume Novus Ordo, but still they evidently have the faith enough to oppose abortion. Their homes are being raided, they're being let off in handcuffs in front of their children <clears throat> for the crime of opposing abortion. <clears throat> they're being charged with uh, impeding access to abortion, some kind of federal statute that they've cooked up somewhere. And, you know, I see this persecution coming. Exactly uh, the groundwork for it, I believe, was late at Vatican II, though. That Francis is touting the 60th anniversary of Vatican II. I see the origins of this present uh, persecution, even on the part of governments, <laughs> with Vatican II. That Vatican II has unleashed this. Uh, in principle, um, you know, Eric Merrick Garland, he's Jewish, you know, that he's raised Jewish, and the fact that he is targeting and using the FBI to target Christians, pro lifers. I mean, at what point can one see here a, a certain animus against, against Christians, particularly Christian pro lifers, and uh, <clears throat> to see here this? this mentality of persecution of this, this Jewish man who is in power now and turning the power of government to persecute Christians. Can we not see something going on here that is very ominous? <clears throat> and so many of those who are involved. Actually, the same, the same approach, the same approach to persecute the Christians for their pro-life effort, and this is, and and we see the cause for persecutions of Christians. We see a Jewish man condemning the rosary as a weapon, and those who have it, as almost as though they were modern-day terrorists armed with weapons. And again, you know, we're hearing the voice. I mean, God forbid that you should say anything about the Jews, you know. But here you have actual Jews who are turning their voices explicitly and trying to use police powers of government to repress Christians and to persecute them. And I think the Christian people should realize what's going on here and uh, that they, they should insist that the government not fall into those hands, that they should not be abused by militantly anti-Christian Jewish people or anybody else for that matter.
um, you know, and it, it's, it's, it's a very bad sign for the future, but I think Christians need to actually see what's going on here. That this is all being, it's, it's being animated by a hatred for Christ and a hatred for Christianity. I think that's becoming more and more obvious. So, in any case, um, I think Vatican II actually has unleashed that whirlwind into the world, right? And um, I, I would just implore people to leave Vatican II, get away from it, and just return, practice the traditional Catholic faith, attend only the traditional Catholic Mass, hold on to the traditional Catholic religion with all your might, because that's like wrapping your arms around the cross, well, the cross of our Lord himself, wrapping your arms around the cross and holding on very tightly. That's what the traditional Catholic religion is all about. Amen. Father, thank you for being here tonight. Appreciate well, you're welcome, Tom, and I'm sorry for being prolix, but... Uh, okay, it's yeah. right Yep, thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you, and God bless you.